Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? Great. Yep. Some of you said, you know, it's kind of hot outside. I think I'll just go to church. You know, because, I mean, like, you know, summer didn't just show up. It kicked the door open and said, just want you to know I'm still here. You know, because, man, all of a sudden it got hot. <laughs> so glad you're here. Thanks for spending part of your 4th of July weekend slash holiday uh, with us guests. Really glad to have you with us as well. Uh, we're honored that you uh, chose to spend some time with us here. There's a lot of places you could have been, and you're here with us uh, today, so we really appreciate that. Um, we're going to start a series over the next few weeks, and we're going to talk about Paul. Sorry, that was just big on the screen. I didn't realize it would be that big till I saw it, you know, so, you know, in case you didn't know who we were talking about. Um, but one of, the thing, one of the reasons we're going to dig into this is it's really important to remember that the people that we encounter in the Bible are just as flawed as you and I. We have a really easy tendency to elevate biblical figures up onto pedestals that they're not intended to be on. You know, when we may say things like, well, I, I, could never be a, I could never be a David. I could never have that kind of faith and trust. And I'm not smart enough to be a Paul and write all these letters and do all these things. When we say those kind of things, we minimize what the power of the Spirit can do through each one of us. And part of us digging into these people in the Bible is to really get at and look at their flaws first um, and, and see, what that what, see what that can say to us. And that's how we're going to start uh, with our series through Paul. We're going to look at uh, something that is really serious, uh, but also what we can glean from that. So let's pray together before we dive into the message. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to open it, uh, to glean from it, to learn from it, uh, and Lord, hopefully apply it. Uh, for that's where we really see the power of your spirit, your presence, and your word. So, Lord, open our minds and hearts to what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts today. I'm going to be jumping around different places in the book of Acts. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 5, and then that's going to launch us into some other places if you want to follow along in your Bible. So the, the, the first thing that I'll talk about, just kind of setting the stage for our introduction to Paul, is that the quick rise of a new religion had unsettled the religious establishment in Jerusalem. The book of Acts is the beginning of the church as we know it to be. Luke records what we know as the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2. It says that the Holy Spirit fell. Peter stands up being compelled by the Holy Spirit to preach uh, the message of Jesus crucified and resurrected. And it says that every person there heard Peter as if he was speaking in his or her own language. And it says that because of the power of the Spirit and, and the compelling nature of what Peter had to say, that thousands became believers in Jesus on that day. And after that day, the church literally exploded onto the scene. 
And so Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, we just see this, this movement of people following and believing in Jesus just was growing at a rapid pace. I don't even think rapid is a, is a strong enough word for how quick the church was growing. As a result of that, those that were in religious power in Jerusalem became very um, put off and felt a threat by this growing religious movement, this growing faith movement. Now, in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, here's what we read. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. One of the things that I find interesting about this verse, because this, this is the turning point to where this, this new uh, religion uh, starts to get pushback. And it doesn't say that the religious leaders took issue with what they were teaching. It doesn't say that the religious leaders had an issue with uh, the person that they were following, and that was Jesus, the man that they executed uh, as an insurrectionist. It says jealousy. Like, that's the reason to throw them in jail? I'm jealous? I'll throw you in? Okay, look, if you're jealous of somebody, good luck proving that case to get them in jail, right? But it just shows that when something comes against us or we perceive it coming against us and, and, and there's popularity, there's growth, there's energy around it, and you don't have that kind of growth, you don't have that kind of energy, you know, jealousy will creep into the human mind and the human heart really, really quick. Have you, ever heard, have you ever said these words? I don't know why. I just don't know why they don't like me. Like, what have I done to them? I just, I just don't know why they don't like me. Have you ever uttered that? Maybe it's because you have something they are jealous of. And we don't often think of that, about, about it in that way. Oftentimes we're like, well, if they don't like me, that's just fine. You know, but, but jealousy is one of those things that when we look at what someone else has and we want that, then we'll start doing things or saying things that are really ungodly in nature because it's fueled by jealousy. And, and religion is one of those places where jealousy will rear its ugly head. Uh, you, know, you know, because if, if you've ever been in a church... And somewhere down the road, another church was growing faster than the church you're in. Everybody starts talking about, well, what are they doing? What's different? What's going on over there? And jealousy will creep in to our pockets of, of our churches really, really quickly. We have to guard that we aren't looking at what others have or what we perceive them to have and start doing things out of jealousy rather than faithfulness to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So the leadership in Jerusalem responded first out of jealousy. It wasn't about theology. It wasn't about doctrine. It, I mean, it wasn't about power. It was simply jealousy that got their attention first about this growing movement that was called the way. Now, before we get introduced to Paul, there's one other guy that I want you to that that I want us to look at for a minute because again we're laying the groundwork to set the you know so we understand what was going on around the introduction of Paul. Uh, I want you to read a name. I want you to know a name that would be easy to read past. 
Because look, the Bible's full of names, some names we see a lot, some names we don't see a lot of, and it's easy to just kind of say, you know, this person, this person, this person, and move on. But we can easily miss something really significant. So let's jump ahead to Acts 5, 33. So what happens in between 17 and 33? The apostles are put in jail. The Holy Spirit opens the door of the prison cells. The Spirit leads the apostles back out into the temple to be preaching uh, the message of Jesus when they should have been in jail. The religious leaders go get the apost- go to get the apostles out of the cells. They're not there. They weren't hard to find because they were in the temple court. They were in the temple there preaching the gospel. They call them back in, um, and the apostles are giving a defense of why they believe in Jesus, the message of Jesus, what's important uh, about Jesus. And here's what we read in verse 33. When they, being the council, heard this, they were furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men, the apostles, be sent outside the chamber council. Now, here's what's a couple of things that are important here to understand. A Pharisee means separated. Whenever you read the word Pharisee, the word translates into English as separated. The more you know about Jewish religious law and how they practiced it, that's literally how a Pharisee viewed themselves. They are separated from everybody else. And the reason they view themselves as separated is they have a high emphasis on personal piety. That just means your morals, your ethics, your code of conduct, how good you are, and you don't mind telling people how good you think you are. You know, you don't mind doing that. But then there's also an acceptance of oral tradition and written law. That would be easy to to move past too, but there's a couple of things at work here. If you're a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Have you read Numbers? You had to know it from memory. And so there's this high emphasis on knowing the Mosaic law, but then there's also oral tradition. So different priests, different rabbis who who were very influential in their teaching and in their interpreting of the Mosaic law, their words would be considered at the same level as the Mosaic law. That's a pretty dangerous slope to go down because if we start thinking the things that we say are on the same level with God, some very dangerous interpretations usually follow that. Catholicism does that. Decrees that a pope orders can be looked at uh, on that same level for your following oral tradition and written law. The Mormon church practices that as well. So the the Jews elevated oral tradition to the same place as written law. They observed over 600 individual laws. 600. And rituals concerning ceremonial purification. You know, just making sure they weren't ceremoniously unclean in any way. I mean, like, did they observe, you know, asking for forgiveness, repentance of sin, confession of something before they would do anything? Did they wash their hands? Did they wash their feet? Is everything they're doing considered clean? 
So there's a lot of detail that goes into this. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of study, and a lot of very specific practice that goes into being a Pharisee. So to have this amount of knowledge and put it into practice is now converging with what's happening with this explosion of the early church. So the ruling council held religious and political power in Jerusalem. Now, even though Rome was over uh, Jerusalem at this point, there were still certain aspects of their religious and daily life that were driven by the, by the religious high council. So their government and their religion were not separate entities. Everything was enmeshed together. So if they believed that you were a problem, like they wanted Jesus taken care of, they had ways by which they could see that happen. So we get introduced to Gamaliel. Let me tell you the thing that Gamaliel says that's very important here as we're laying the groundwork for Paul. Gamaliel orders them out, and here's what he says. Summarize it. If this movement is not of God, it will fizzle out. If it is of God, you can't stop it. That's basically what he said. So the, the, the emotional level of the religious leaders is growing because they've moved from putting them in prison to now wanting to kill them. So there's blood in the water. You know, the sharks are starting to circle, so to speak. And Gamaliel says, wait a minute. Just slow your roll. You know, hold up a little bit. Just slow down. And he gives examples that, look, if this, if this movement is not of God, you don't have anything to worry about. But it, if it is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And do you really want to be one who fights against God? Very measured response that unfortunately wasn't heeded, was not followed. In Acts chapter 22, we see Gamaliel's name come up one more time. And it's in Paul, in his response uh, to people that are questioning his background. Here's what Paul says. I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. So this man that just stood up and gave this very measured, wise response to this growing religious movement was the man responsible for being the mentor, the teacher of Paul. Kind of interesting that here's this circle. So Paul wasn't on the council yet, but he was certainly hoping to be. Here's what Paul goes on to say, and we'll touch on this in a minute. I became very zealous to honor God in Everything I did, just like all of you, I persecuted followers of the way. That was what this early movement was called. It wasn't called Christianity. It was called the way. Hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them into prison. So Paul's just given you a brief glimpse into where he was uh, coming off of this education and training in religious law. Now, just to give you a little bit of perspective visually, Paul was from this area called Tarsus. 
and here's Jerusalem here. It's pretty good distance. Tarsus was a high trade city. It was uh, at the mouth of a river that led into the Mediterranean Sea. Very, very high trade activity, really good place to do business. So it was not unusual for Jewish families to move away from Jerusalem into some of these other places, set up a business, uh, get into being involved in trade, whatever the case may be. They were still very devout Jews. They would have to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so somewhere around the age of 14, Paul would have left Tarsus and gone down to Jerusalem and started studying under this man named Gimaliel. So Paul's biggest influence as a teacher is sitting on the very council deciding the fate of the early church leaders, and it's highly likely that Paul's goal was to gain a seat on this council called the Sanhedrin, which is where Gamaliel sat, who viewed themselves as protectors and defenders of the law of Moses. Because if you're a Jew, everything goes back to the law of Moses. The, the law was delivered through Moses, spoken through Moses, written down through Moses, and then passed down from generation to generation. They viewed themselves as protectors and defenders. And remember, if you start getting jealous because you think what you are sworn to protect and defend is now at threat... How far will you go to protect that very thing you have given your life to? And that's where things really start to get serious. Now, before he was Paul, his name was Saul. That's how we're first introduced to him. So move over to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, here's what we read. There's a man named Stephen who is commissioned by the, by the, by the apostles uh, to, for a very important task that was needed, and I'm not going to go into the details for the sake of time. Stephen is now one of those that's arrested, and now Stephen comes in to give a defense of why he believes in Jesus as the Messiah, during his defense, he tells the Sanhedrin, you're blind and you're sinners. They didn't take that very well. Usually people in power, when their motives or their character are called into question by a perceived threat, it doesn't go very well. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 57, then they, being the Sanhedrin, put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. 
So we've gone from a very measured mentor in Gamaliel who says, look, leave it alone. It'll, it, it'll either go away or you won't be able to stop it anyway. To now one of his protégés, one of his students, one of the ones that he has tried to guide and, and, and shape as a future seat you know, potentially sitting on the Sanhedrin to now agreeing completely with the execution of those that profess Jesus. This set Saul in motion as now the chief persecutor of, of believers of Jesus, of, of early Christians. Listen to what Acts chapter 9-1 says. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. Think about that. Have you ever been so filled with hate that that's all you can think about? And not only do you think about it, you're just uttering what it is you hate all the time. All the time. I tell you what, these Christians, they don't know what they're doing. They, 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 they got another thing coming to them. I can't wait to get my hands on them. And it's just like, dude, like you're on the edge of madness. If you're going to be uttering these kind of threats with every breath you take. I saw this online two weeks ago. The FBI brought up hate crime charges against an individual who lives in Cabarrus County for this very thing. Because he was so filled with hate toward people of, of various colors, of, of, their, of their country of origin, of their ethnic background, of their color, that there were multiple accounts of him verbally delivering threats to people of different colors. And they eventually had to bring him up on charges. He had, there was a Hispanic family that moved in next door to him who literally stayed inside most of the time because they did not know what confrontations they were going to have day in and day out. So blinded by hatred that you're just uttering threats and hate with every breath. And then it also says, eager to kill. Now look. There's things you and I get eager to do. I mean, you know, I'm kind of eager to determine what I'm going to cook for the 4th of July because, you know, I'm, I'm, you, can, you can tell. I, you can tell, okay? You can tell. You know, some of you are eager to, like, go to the lake and throw a hook in the water and see if a fish bites it. Some of you are eager to get together with your friends, grill out, uh, you know, go sit on the beach. Some of you are so eager for your vacation, you can't stand it. I mean, that's all you're talking about. That's all you're thinking about. You're so eager to do something. Can you imagine the mentality that you are eager to take life? And the reason I'm spending so much time on this is we can't underestimate where Paul was mentally as it related to those that were following Jesus. Uttering threats with every breath and eager to kill. There's a lot of things that we can be eager to do. I hope killing isn't one of them. Because that shows such a uh, slope that he has gone down with his mind. And one of the reasons this is important to start here, I think, is because Paul exhibits some very dangerous traits of those that adhere too tightly 
to the practice of religion. Now, let's draw a little bit of a line here. There's a very big difference between being a person of faith and being a religious person. Religion is a man-made institution and organization. We are littered in our history with different ways followers of Jesus have tried to organize this practice of our faith that we know of as religion. That's why there are 7,200 and 86, no, 87, no, wait a minute, another one broke off, number of denominations across the world. Because we've all got differing ideas about what, 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 what the interpretation of Scripture is, how God should be worshipped, how God should be followed. Other religions have the same issues and some of the same challenges. Whenever you put people together and you try to organize them into this thing called church, that's where religion happens. But religion and living out faith can be two very different things because the more structured religion becomes, the more predictable it becomes. And oftentimes we find comfort or we find safety in something that's measured and predictable. Saul was in a system that was very predictable that had been handed down from generation to generation to generation, tracing all the way back to Moses. But it was still the practice of religion. And as much as you and I, at certain times, get frustrated with the organization of church, you know, as we know it, you know, we're still practicing religion. And as much as we try not to, it's still religion. And anytime people gather together, it becomes a religious practice. We cannot separate ourselves from that. But what we can do is be aware of how dangerous religion can be so that we don't follow suit. Because when religion gets out of control, usually bad things happen. Here's the first thing Paul shows us. Those who practice religion do not like to lose power, influence, or position. There is nowhere that we can go in the human experience where we aren't tempted to be drunk with power or desire a position or hope to have a platform. I mean, that's, there's, there's a part of that that's just, that's just part of the human experience. You know, we, we want to be a person of influence. We want to have a position of power. We want to have opportunities to lead or to influence in certain ways. But there's something that adds a level of seriousness to that when it happens in religious settings. Because when, when religious people don't want to let go of their position, they don't want to let go of their influence, they don't want to let go of their power, usually some pretty bad things Happen. There's a documentary on Netflix right now about the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. I highly recommend you watch it um, because it shows you what happens when one individual uh, has a certain level of power and influence and is unwilling to yield and what happens as a result. 
the religious leaders of Saul's day were very bent on holding on to their power, their influence, and their position. But you see, biblically, true influence as shown throughout Scripture is not those who hold a position. But those who do what Micah 6.8 says, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, is it any accident that those that we talk about the most that made great influence in human history were those that were nonviolent? Martin Luther King Jr. comes to mind about his desire that no matter what happened in the right, uh, in, in, in the move towards civil rights, that those that adhered to his philosophy would not strike back. They would not counter back with violence. It didn't matter how violent the authorities got with them. Influence comes out of doing justly, loving mercy, and being humble before our God. But you see, when we hang on to our positions, pride creeps in. Jealousy creeps in, fear creeps in, and we start doing things that are not just, that are not merciful, and that are far from humble. Meaning that those of us that follow Christ, regardless of, we, regardless of our feelings of church or how church is structured or how church functions or this thing we call religion, that we must put our focus first and foremost on Christ and the leadership of his Holy Spirit before we give consideration to anything else. Because if we start to get too bent on our systems or our platforms or our structures we can go down a similar path. It may take us a long time to get there, but that's usually how it begins. Here's the second thing that Paul shows us, that uh, Saul shows us. Those who practice religion often believe they are right and justify their actions. Isn't it interesting that the very uh, religious law that started with the Ten Commandments that includes thou, you shall not kill, has a zealot like Paul who was eager to kill. And Paul, Saul would have justified it. He justified it because they are a threat to everything we've taught, everything we've known, everything that we are a part of. And so one of the things that we have to guard against in our practice of religion and, and how our message is portrayed to the world is that we cannot justify being self-righteous, judgmental, or condemning of those that are far from God. See, one of the reasons religion struggles and one of the reasons religion has struggled in the American context, because in case you've never seen this data, the number of people that are attending church continues to decline year over year. Every mainline denomination is hemorrhaging people is because the view, the perception, is that there's too many people wanting to say that they are right and justifying their actions into the very world that we are called to reach. And we cannot justify judgmental, condemning, self-righteous behavior and then turn around and reach that same world connect with those same people that have lifestyles that we reject, that have attitudes or opinions that we stand at odds with. And it's scary to think that we can do things in the name of God and justify it 
and think that we are right. Regardless of what society or culture may say, those that profess Christ and bomb an abortion clinic hurt the whole cause. And we've seen that happen. Believing they were justified, but yes, abortion is horrendous. It is abhorrent. But we can't justify where we, where we have now stripped the humanity away from someone else and believe ourselves to be right. We have to guard against that. If we believe Christianity is right, if we believe Christianity is true, if we believe that being a Christ follower is the best way to live, then our lives show that. We don't need to use power. We don't need to use force. We don't need to coerce or force others to follow or believe. And we certainly don't silence dissenting voices. Like there are some in our culture trying to do. Number three. Religion can blind anyone to what is true and right. Whenever religion violates someone's humanity, it's lost its way. Because remember, we are created in the image of God. We carry uh, the, the very breath of God in us. That's why God hates murder. That's why he said you're not to do that. Because you are created in my image and you are not to take another life. And when religion gets so blinded to what one uh, person's view of, when someone's humanity is now stripped away from them, all bets are off. It didn't matter that Paul was ripping fathers away from children, wives away from their homes, that he was breaking up families simply because they chose to believe a different way. And one of the things that is so hard for us sometimes to navigate is this tension that exists between grace and truth. We love to sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we stand on the grace of God. We preach the grace of God. But when we get too enmeshed in our religion and we're threatened by the world, we stop practicing grace and we only stand on truth. And look, there is a truth, and that truth is revealed to us by God through his word, but truth without a measure of grace becomes a Saul defending what he knows. However, we can't just throw truth out and only stand on grace, because if we only talk about grace, then anything goes. Do whatever you want to do, it's okay. Live however you want to. It's okay. Believe whatever you want to believe. It's okay. God has a standard. And so we don't throw truth out just to stand on grace. There has to be this measured tension between grace and truth. That we stand on the truth, but we do it gracefully. As gracefully as we know how. As gracefully as the Spirit compels us to be graceful and how we talk about the truth of who God is, his way, his standard, and his salvation. At some point, all of us have been discouraged by church. 
Maybe some of you in this room have found your way back because you had some bad experiences with church. I mean, like write a book, shoot a movie bad. And some of you never thought you'd ever darken the door of a church again, and yet here you are because there's something that's compelling you, that's leading you, that's drawing you back. But yet you're on edge because it's like, you know, I just, I just don't know if I can quite, you know, I, you know, like I'll stick my toe in the water, but I'm not going off into the deep end. Because I've been in that deep end and I don't like that deep end. But there's something that has compelled you to come here, but you're still on guard. For all of us to be aware of the danger of religion, for all its good, just being aware of the danger can save us from following a path of Saul. And don't think that you could never get to the place of Saul. If you become dogmatic and zealous and jealous enough of something, we can all go down the path of Saul. And it may not be over church. It could be over something material. It could be over a relationship. There's no telling what will happen to us when we become that dogmatic that zealous, and that jealous. One of the things that happens when we get too enmeshed in our religion and we think we're right and everybody else is wrong is we start to have this posture where we're looking down at those that aren't like us. We're looking down at those that believe differently, that live differently, that think differently. Came across this quote from C.S. Lewis. And it's a good reminder of the underbelly or the dark side of religion. As long as you're looking down at someone, you can't see what's above. As long as you're looking down on someone, you can't see what's above. Our first introduction to one of the great figures of the early church is a man who looked down. Thought he was right. Thought he had it figured out. Next week, we're going to look at what changed him. And his response to meeting face to face with the resurrected Jesus. But that's where he started. Looking down, thinking he's right. And the pain that he caused, hundreds if not thousands, I don't even think we can fathom. You see, why are we talking about this? Because we're in a place of religion. For all it's good, we're not perfect. No church is, no church will be, no organized uh, set of systems and beliefs is going to have it all figured out. And I think that's by design. But what God did do is he, he established us as human beings as the mouthpiece of the message of the gospel. And why he chose people, he can explain to us when we get to heaven. Because it's a beautiful picture of how the gospel spreads, but it's also a dangerous picture. Because when we get religion wrong, we make God look really bad. But when we get religion right, God looks really good. And really, that's the goal. 
God, you look good. Because your love is strong, your love is true, your love is pure, your salvation does not stop its redemptive work. And I'll close with this. And we'll get into this more as we get into Saul. Everybody's got skeletons in their closet. There are things in our lives we don't want anybody else to know. Mistakes that we've made, poor judgment, poor decisions, things that just at some point, you know, we, we don't look back with any measure of pride or satisfaction. But what we can't do is let those things be the reason God cannot use us. Because if we say, well, if I hadn't have done X, maybe God would let me, we minimize the power of God in our life. And God is too powerful to not use you exactly where he has you. He's too powerful to not allow the things that you've done and been through to be a reason to share your faith with other people. You don't have to go into the gory details. You don't have to dig up things that don't need to be dug up. But what you can do is learn through the Holy Spirit and the movement of Him in your life to say, God, where do you want me? And use me where you have me. That's the kind of God we have. And I'm getting ahead of the story, I know but to take a man who executed followers of Christ and turn him into a champion of the faith. We have to know where it started, but we also know where we go. We also know where we go. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your work never stops. There's people in this room that you have drawn and are drawing to yourself. But Lord, for those of us who believe and have believed, we come to church because we want to be here. We share our faith because we're compelled to. We practice this thing called religion because we don't, we don't know a better way to do it. God, guard our hearts and guard our minds that we don't go the path of Paul. that when religion gets ugly, we hurt your name. It's a funny thing that our name really doesn't get hurt as much as yours. And forgive us when that happens. God, that we would be people who seek to practice this thing called church in such a way that you are seen as good, loving, merciful, graceful and just. Remind us that we can take the same path if we don't guard our hearts and our minds in your truth, in your presence, by your spirit. I pray this in your great, great name. Amen and amen. Um, over the next couple of days, if you have an opportunity, and if you think about it, say a prayer of thanks to God for your freedom. 
This country is far from perfect, never has been. But our freedoms are precious. And they're not guaranteed. They're a gift that has to be stewarded. Thank God for that freedom. There's millions of people that have uprooted their lives in other parts of the world so that they could experience what we have. Are there reasons to be concerned? Absolutely. But there's still a lot of reason to be thankful for the freedoms that we do have. This is a great, great country to be free. And we need to thank God for that because it is a gift that we could lose. So make sure to thank him for that, okay? Have a great time with friends, family. Stay cool, stay healthy, stay safe. We'll see you guys next week.